Hey there, Art Curious listeners. We are preparing for the launch of our 10th season later next month. But we are not going to leave you high and dry during this time, so we are re-releasing some oldies from our back catalog for you to enjoy. And today's show is another one, like the episode that we released earlier during our break, on Edvard Munch and the disastrous reasons behind his famous painting, The Scream. The re-release today does link back to our recent season on Cursed Art. I mentioned in the episode on the Palazzo Dario that I almost wrote that specific episode back in season one, and instead I did a different story about Creepy Venice. So I am releasing that one again here. Please listen back to episode number 17, The Casino of the Spirits. To me, there's no city in the world that can top Venice, Italy. That glittering vision resting on a lagoon, filled with architectural wonders, a hotbed of musical and artistic creation throughout history, glowing with pink and gold. When I first visited the city nearly 20 years ago, I fell in love immediately with the winding paths leading from one bridge to another, carrying me along past Byzantine churches and crumbling Renaissance palazzos. This first trip to Venice was taken in summertime, so my impressions were colored by heat, a shimmering, intense wave that sent me back to my hotel and ready for bed long before the sun dipped below the horizon. It wasn't until many years later that I had much of an opportunity to explore Venice at night. But it is this darkened and quiet Venice that takes up the most space in my imagination. Perhaps it's fueled by too many movies like Don't Look Now, but I seriously love the depictions of Venice as enigmatic, shadowy, and even dangerous. And it's easy to feel that way if you're walking in Venice at night. Without cars or streetlights or other modern comforts, you might feel like you've stepped back in time and that around any given corner, you could find anything. Your eyes start playing tricks on you as they attempt to focus through the mist and darkness. The lapping waters of the canals echo around the decaying buildings, and they equally confuse the mind. Was that a gondola I heard? Or did someone fall into the deep black water? All of this lends Venice the air of inscrutability and mystery. And over time, locals and visitors alike have reveled in this sensation as fodder for myth-making and storytelling. Some stories really stick, lasting for centuries and becoming embedded into the city itself through its buildings, monuments, and specific locations. And there's one building that has had plenty of legends built around it. This particular elegant structure had an illustrious past, having once been a meeting place where Italian Renaissance artists discussed their craft, caroused, and gambled. But it's also the location where relationships soured, crimes were committed, and death inevitably followed. Today, some people won't even enter this particular building because it is feared to be haunted, cursed, or both. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or even more fun than you can imagine. Art history is full of murder, intrigue, feisty women, rebellious men, crime, insanity, and so much more. And today, we're exploring one of Venice's most haunted locales, the Casino of the Spirits, supposedly inhabited by the ghost of a mad artist named Lutzo. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history, this is the Art Curious Podcast. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Thank you.
during the Renaissance was a true sight to behold, and one whose experience and manifestation of the Renaissance was different than anywhere else in Italy. And I am not simply just talking about its unique and slightly strange placement on a lagoon instead of terra firma. I'm talking also about its history, which stems not from the conquering Romans of the South, but instead owes much of its heritage to the Byzantine Empire, which took fair advantage of Venice's port location on the northern Adriatic Sea to establish the city as an important trade center. And it's from Byzantium that Venice also received much of its aesthetic uniqueness, like the mix of Byzantine and Italianate architecture that defines its most iconic church, St. Mark's Basilica. Think golden domes and mosaics mixed with a Latin cross floor plan. The connection between the empire and the little port city stayed a cozy one until the end of the Middle Ages, when Venice burst onto the spotlight as its own maritime force to be reckoned with, and a center of great cultural, commercial, and artistic importance. A truly Venetian style of Renaissance art developed within this one-of-a-kind city, dubbed La Serenissima, or the most serene city and it praised different elements of fine art than its landlocked cousins, Roman Florence, where iconic artists like Leonardo, Raphael, Botticelli, Brunelleschi, and Michelangelo lived and worked. Putting it in very basic terms, the Florentines, for example, praised a more linear approach to art making. To them, the line, so drawing, design, and all that it represents, was the essence to the representation of the world around them. But to the Venetians, this wasn't the case. Their secret to art, especially painting, was color. The blending and the layering of it, as well as its very liberal usage. In art historical terms, sometimes people boil down this rivalry to simply saying that Venetians used brighter colors than Florentines. But this is technically not true. In fact, artists throughout the rest of Italy used colors that were extraordinarily bright as well. One visit to see Michelangelo's handiwork in the Sistine Chapel post-restoration will confirm this. But the Venetians treated color differently, combining it and melding it in such a skillful way that some canvases almost exude an otherworldly glow. Obviously, these two approaches to artistic creation were, if not in opposition to one another, at least presenting a different way of looking at things. And that, combined with geographic tensions, meant that there was a significant amount of rivalry between the creative factions of Venice and other city-states throughout the regions. And the members of these groups would do what people are keen on doing, finding members of their own tribe and hanging out together to revel in their joint interests. So it wouldn't be surprising to know that a lot of Venetian art heavyweights, Giorgione and Titian in particular, along with their Florentine friend Jacopo Sansovino, liked to hang out together to talk shop. When they met, they would spend hours discussing the merits of a particular pigment or the blending of tones to create a luminous cityscape, for example. But that wasn't all that they liked to do when they got together. No way. They also wanted to gamble, to drink themselves into a stupor, and to philander and womanize to their heart's content. And so they really needed a meeting place, their very own boys' club, in which to do their deeds. In good time, they settled on a particular location, an elegant mansion on the outskirts of the city called the Palazzo Contarini del Zafo. This palace, which was a truly vast structure, was commissioned by the politician Gasparo Contarini, who had it built on the site of an older Gothic building between the years of 1530 and 1540. 
Gasparo Contarini was part of a wealthy family who could claim the Duchy of Jaffa as part of his ancestral legacy, with Jaffa being a Venetian stronghold in the Holy Land and part of Israel today. Though Gasparo himself worked in politics, one of his interests was art. And in fact, he even commissioned the painter Gian Domenico Tiepolo to create a huge fresco called the Apotheosis of Giorgio Contarini to celebrate and commemorate his family line. Gasparo loved to support the arts and artists as much as possible, so he was not only a patron of particular works of art, but he also offered an annex of his palace as a meeting place for his artistic friends. It was said that not only was the annex of the palace a decent place to spend some time, but that it had such a magnificent garden that it attracted the awe and attention of any of its visitors, be they artists, musicians, dancers, or simply the very rich. So, as you can imagine, the Palazzo became one of the top places to throw lavish, inspired parties. So much so that as early as the mid-1500s, when Giorgione, Titian, and friends began frequenting it, the Palazzo developed a unique nickname. The Casino degli Spiriti. The Little House of the Spirits. This sobriquet, at the time, referred to the energetic visitors and creative types who would carouse there. But over time, the name morphed and became something so different and so much darker. There's more to the story of the Casino of the Spirits coming up next, right after this quick break. There's a lot more to art than Baroque paintings and marble statues. There's all kinds of art out there to be enjoyed. NFTs, butter sculpture, painted gourds, taxidermied house pets. And then there's another underrated art form, shopping for car or home insurance. Once this took postmodern artists hours or even days to find their perfect policy, but now you can discover your policy masterpiece in minutes with The Zebra. The Zebra compares home and car quotes from every major insurance company in under five minutes, giving you all the facts you need to make the right decision. It's the fastest way to find the right coverage at the right price, all from a provider that you can trust. In fact, the Zebra saves people an average of $922 a year on home and auto combined. That's more than most macaroni artists can make in a lifetime. I've definitely tried to find some good insurance coverage in the past, and it has taken me a lot of time just going to all these different websites. But the Zebra can do it all for you in one place, allowing you to make a quicker and easier decision in the end. So get your perfect home or car insurance policy by comparing quotes for free and start saving at thezebra.com art. That's thezebra.com art. This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by BetterHelp. There have truly been times in my life where I've needed some assistance to figure out what I wanted from life and how to find the happiness I deserved. And that's why I turned to BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is here to help you too. With BetterHelp, a professional can assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist with whom you can begin communicating in less than 48 hours. And it is so convenient because you can connect from wherever you are in a safe and private online environment environment, and you can message, call, or video chat 
chat with your therapist, all instead of commuting somewhere and sitting uncomfortably in a waiting room. And BetterHelp also makes it easy to find the right therapist for you. Whether you're looking for help with depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, LGBT matters, self-esteem, or anything, and you don't have to limit yourself to someone who works near your home. Believe me, I've used BetterHelp and it is so easy. And I loved my counselor I connected with. And even if I didn't, it would have been so easy and free to change counselors if I wanted. It's confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. And financial aid is available. BetterHelp is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It is professional counseling done securely. And check this out. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As an Art Curious listener, you're important to me. And so I want you to start living a happier life today. By visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp, you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling by visiting betterhelp.com artcurious. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's at betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. Along with the main core of artists, Titian Giorgione Sansovino, came others who would flit in and out of their soirees. Poets and playwrights, sculptors and painters. The writer Pietro Arentino was considered a close friend of Titian's, and so he frequently joined the artists for their parties and discussions, as did Paolo Veronese, another prominent painter in the city, becoming well-known at the time for his large-scale religious and mythological paintings throughout town. Veronese, though, it must be said, was about a generation younger than Titian and was very much inspired by him, but he didn't particularly get along well with the elder artist. Because of this, he wasn't a frequent guest at the Casino degli Spiriti. A person who was, though, was a painter by the name of Luzzo. From what little information there seems to be on Luzzo, we know at least the following. His real name was most likely either Pietro Luzzo or Lorenzo Luzzo, though he also went by the name Pietro Lucci as well. And if that wasn't complicated enough, he may have also had another nickname, Zarato, which historians believe was either given to him posthumously to commemorate his death in the province of Zara, now modern-day Zadar, in Croatia, or it could possibly have been because Lezzo, or Zarato's own father, lived in Zara for a short while. For most of his life, though, he went by yet another nickname, Morto da Feltre. Let's break this all down. The last part of the nickname, da Feltre, refers to his home of Feltre in the province of Belluno, about 100 kilometers north of Venice. He was born there in the late 15th century. But the first part, morto, means dead or dead one, and is variously mentioned as having been bestowed on him for differing reasons. One, because of his utterly joyless temperament, or two, his almost corpse-like pallor, or three, due to his known interest in exploring crypts and burial grounds. This little hobby struck his fancy after a visit to Rome as a teenager, wherein he studied under the tutelage of the painter Andrea de Cosimo. That grotto and crypt exploration seems to have had quite an influence on Lezzo, who was so inspired by the sculptural designs of the crypt decoration that he began replicating its curving, arabesque styles in his paintings when he returned to northern Italy. Almost immediately, people started noticing that Lezzo's paintings were good, quite good. Sure, he wasn't a Michelangelo and certainly not a Leonardo, but his paintings held their own, and he started to get some attention for them. 
Word of mouth for Lutso was so good that a towering figure in the world of Venetian art, Giorgione himself, requested Lutso's assistance for a huge fresco project on the facade of a large building on the Grand Canal. Giorgione, along with his paltician, had been commissioned to paint the facade of the Fondaco dei Tedeschi on the Grand Canal, which was a building of supreme importance to the German community in Venice, and had at the time only recently been rebuilt after a devastating fire in January of 1505. And it seems that Lutzo worked alongside Giorgione for between three to five years, stories do differ, until the project was completed. Side note. This sounds like a cool project, right? Well, unfortunately, we can't really experience the work in its frescoed state today, as the super salty and very humid climate of Venice meant that the building's facade basically disintegrated over time, though there are a few remaining fragments housed today in another palazzo called the Ca d'Oro. After around 1510, Lutzo traveled back and forth between Feltre and Venice, completing artworks in both locations for public and private commissions, including some frescoes of his very own. But when he was in Venice, he made sure to stop by the Casino degli Spiriti to carouse and imbibe with his cohort of Venetian creatives and intellectuals. It is not known exactly when things took a turn for the worse for Lutzo. But according to legend, it all began with a woman. At one of the gatherings at the casino, he met a dark-haired beauty named Cecilia, or Cecilia, if we're going by the authentic Italian pronunciation. Cecilia had a sweet, cherubic face, with heavy-lidded eyes and one of those perfect rosebud mouths, features so beguiling to men that she was simply known as La Bella Cecilia, or the beautiful Cecilia. It is said, too, that she was a singer and could entrance all within her sight with her deep and smooth voice and one of those entranced was Lutzo. There was only one problem. Cecilia already had a lover, and her lover was Giorgione. Giorgione and Cecilia had one of those iconic relationships. He was the fine artist, and she was his model and muse. For our curious subscribers, you'll be familiar with some of the intricacies of this kind of arrangement from our last episode about the artist and muse relationship. Scholars aren't entirely certain how many of Giorgione's canvases Cecilia actually sat for, but most agree that she was the inspiration for the Virgin Mary in one of his most famous works, which represents the Madonna and Child seated on a high throne above St. Francis and another saint identified either as St. Nicasius or St. Liberale. This work is more commonly known today as the Castelfranco Madonna, located in Giorgione's own hometown of Castelfranco, which is about 45 kilometers northwest of Venice, where you can see it today in the town's cathedral. There, the Madonna is draped in luminous reds and rich green, holding the infant Jesus in one hand and calmly looking down with an ever-so-slight tilt to the head. To me, she looks so, so sad. And while that's not unusual in depictions of the Virgin Mary, where artists like to insinuate some kind of psychic foreknowledge of her son's death onto Mary's face, this one just seems extra down. Surely Cecilia's legendary dark hooded eyes really helped Giorgione achieve this effect. And perhaps much of the success of this gorgeous piece is due to Cecilia's modeling and inspiration. The artist certainly may have thought so, as he inscribed a few lines on the back of the canvas, which read, quote, Come, Cecilia, come hasten. Your love is waiting. Giorgio. From contemporary accounts that have made their way into the legend, 
Cicilli's beauty and her singing voice weren't the only traits that defined her. She was also somewhat capricious, prone to outbursts and fits of rage, and she was apparently not totally faithful to Giorgione. Because of this, she was described as equal parts angel and devil. But this didn't seem to matter terribly much. Overall, there was just something about her, and men couldn't look away. Which brings us back to Lutzo. You can almost imagine the scene, can't you? There's Lutzo, standing in a corner of a room, flickering with golden candlelight, listening not only to the lapping waves outside the windows, but to the most exquisite singing voice he's ever heard. As he exits the palazzo and out into the misty night, his thoughts are filled with her, of Cecilia. It's almost enough to drive him mad. Like all the others at the Casino degli Spiriti, Lutzo knew that Cecilia and Giorgione were a couple, but that Cecilia wasn't exclusively Giorgione's lover. So Lutzo did what any other man probably wanted to do at the time, too. He made his way closer and closer to Cecilia over a period of weeks, until one fateful evening he was able to gather up the courage to proposition her. How romantic. She spurned him almost immediately, but Lutzo was not deterred. And so he sought her out again and again, asking her to be his lover, to dine with him, to attend concerts and plays, even just to sit with him during these meetings at the Palazzo. And the more she turned him down, the more deeply he fell in love with her, until at some point he began to crack. And one night, after trying his luck with Cecilia one more time, Lutzo disappeared. We're not done yet with this tale. Stay with us to hear the rest right after a few notes about this week's sponsors. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Storyblocks for sponsoring today's episode. Have you ever had to make a professional video? Making a compelling video story can be expensive and time-consuming. But Storyblocks is now here to make it easier on you, the creator, than ever before, allowing you to keep up with growing demands for video content without sacrificing your vision due to time, budget, or resources. Storyblocks is the first unlimited download subscription-based provider of stock video and audio, with over 100,000 customers in the television and video production industry, from NBC to MTV to hobbyists looking to enhance their video projects and productions. All their assets, from video clips, music, stock images, sound effects, and more, are royalty-free, so you can use your downloaded content anywhere for both commercial and personal use. Plus, their library is being constantly updated to give you the best options to bring your story to life. I recommend trying out their unlimited all-access plan that gives you unlimited downloads of more than 1 million assets in their library, so you can try out multiple options quickly and find the perfect fit so you can create more and spend less without sacrificing quality, which is something that's important to me as I expand the reach of Art Curious and what I, as a creator, can do. So I want you to try them out now. To learn more, please visit storyblocks.com slash artcurious. Join today at storyblocks.com slash artcurious. 
I have had a little bit of trouble sleeping in the past year, so I have needed to find something that will help me manage my sleep problems. And that is when I turn to Feels, because Feels is a better way to feel better. Feels is a premium CBD that will help to keep your head clear and feel your best. It is hassle-free and delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce my stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness, all without hangover or addiction. I place just a few drops of Feels CBD oil underneath my tongue and I can feel the difference in my anxiety levels within minutes. I have been using Feels' standard tinctures to find the relief and the relaxation that I so want. And the thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is important and everyone's dose is different. And in fact, Feels is great because they offer a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience so that you can find your perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the right and best use of your CBD. Joining the Feels monthly membership also makes your self-care easy because you can save time and money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any point. Become a member today by going to feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash artcurious and you will get 40% off your first three months with free shipping. That is F-E-A-L-S dot com slash artcurious to become a member and get 40% automatically taken off your first three months with free shipping. Feels dot com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. According to legend, which you can read today in Alberto Tosi Fey's book, Mysteries of Venice, Lutzo was gone, truly gone, and none of his friends or associates had any idea where he went, and no one in Feltre was able to find him either. A few days after his disappearance, though, there was a strange sight. In one of the windows of the casino, a figure was seen to be hovering. Upon closer inspection, Venetians realized they recognized the face. It was Lutzo, standing in the darkened Casino degli Spiriti, all alone. But when people went up to visit their long-lost friend, they'd opened the doors to the room where Lutzo had been seen minutes earlier, only to find absolutely nothing. Even years later, sightings of Lutzo were commonplace, standing in various windows or even walking the palazzo's halls. And then the noises began. Some visitors claimed to hear long, desperate wailing, only to come to the shuddering realization that it was Lutzo, crying out in despair from unrequited love. Lutzo, you see, had died. By his own hand, they said, in the very room where he used to enjoy the company of his like-minded friends. The name of the Casino degli Spiriti for all of Venice now had a sinister connotation. It was no longer the lively and spirited meeting place of the highbrow artistic community, much to the chagrin of the Contarini family, who still hoped to foster support and discourse there. No, people started to stay away as the rumors of the ghost of Lutzo haunting the palace spread further and further beyond its own walls. Even years later, Venetians continued to report sightings of lights flickering in windows of uninhabited rooms, of moaning or crying emanating from the casino sounds, they said, of a man mourning unrequited love. To be fair, much of this, especially the purported sounds, have probably more to do with the palazzo's isolated location than the paranormal. 
And the so-called screams and moans could be due to the particular noises made by the combination of the howling wind and the lapping waters of the lagoon. To the untrained ear, they may indeed sound like a lament of some type. But the claims of the hauntings just stuck. And after the fall of the Venetian Empire in the late 18th century, the palace complex fell into a light state of disrepair after the Contarini family relinquished its location. Its slightly mildewed appearance simply seemed to corroborate the idea of a haunting for many Venetians. But here's the real deal. The story about Luzzo is most likely a complete fabrication. Or, at the very least, the artist that is most frequently associated with Luzzo, Morto da Feltre himself, didn't meet his end in lovesick suicide. No, it turns out that he probably died a heroic death in 1519 in Zara, back there on the Dalmatian coast, where his father had once lived. He was a soldier for the Republic of Venice and was mortally wounded in the course of battle, though even this story is a little bit questionable since some scholars have dated his works later into the 1520s. Regardless, even contemporaries of Morto da Feltre, such as the biographer and artist Giorgio Vasari, confirm a soldier's death as the artist's untimely end. And Vasari, as the first true documenter of the lives of Renaissance artists, wasn't one to let a good story slip away. And so if something truly tragic happened, you better believe he would have written that right up. Even if the story of the suicidal Luzzo isn't true, that doesn't mean that the Casino degli Spiriti hasn't had various run-ins with disaster and death over the years. For example, the nearby island of San Michele was transformed into a cemetery in the early 18th century, and frequently, undertakers would use the palazzo grounds as stopovers on boating trips to transport fresh, or not-so-fresh, corpses en route to their burial. It's been identified as a location where necromancers and black magicians would meet and perform arcane rituals to conjure demons. Though some historians have also speculated that this rumor may have been instigated by a gang of smugglers and counterfeiters who once claimed the casino as their hideout. Such rumors could undoubtedly help to keep away the curious and thus ensure the gang's safety. And of course, we don't want to forget the plague. Like nearly everywhere in Venice, the Casino degli Spiriti was once a holding place for bubonic plague victims during the 17th century that claimed nearly 50,000 lives. That's all ancient history, though, right? Well, the casino's haunting hold is said to still be strong, as it has claims to even more disasters in the 20th century. In 1929, inside the casino, four bodies were found a priest, two brothers, and a gondolier, all missing their heads and their right hands. The heads and the hands were never found, and neither were the masterminds of the gruesome crime. About 20 years later, a local woman named Linda Chimetta was killed, dismembered, and stuffed into a trunk, which was found floating right near the casino. And even today, after a beautiful renovation and an allocation of the property to local religious institutions, there are still individuals who won't set foot anywhere near the casino. Some local fishermen have even refused to sink their lines nearby. Because what would they do if their hooks snagged something bigger and scarier than a fish?
Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. Our episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcasting services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Subscribe now to their new show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies hosted by Josh Dassel, and visit subgenrepodcast.com for more details. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLite. AnchorLite is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLite encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means that you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support. To find the donation links and for more details about the show, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. Of course, we are also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we have merch. You can find the link to all of that again on our website. Check back with us in a few weeks when we start an all-new season about the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. <laughs>